1: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Katherine Shen. Three years into the COVID-19 pandemic, it can be hard to remember those formative and early moments. You may recall from March 2020 onward, there was a regular rotation of medical experts on your news channels. They helped keep us up to speed on what we knew about epidemiology of COVID-19 and the complex nuances of how that evolved. You might have heard the voice of one Connecticut native.
0: Let's bring in Dr. Peter Hotez. Let's bring in Dr. Peter Hotez. He's one U.S. vaccine scientist. Dr. Peter Hotez. Here to explain the trajectory of this virus, Dr. Peter Hotez. Dr. Peter Hotez, welcome to Fresh
1: Air. And from his office at Baylor College of Medicine in Texas, Dr. Peter J. Hotez called out various strains of vaccine hesitancy as part of a larger anti-science movement here in the U.S. And behind the scenes, he helped develop a COVID-19 vaccine, which earned him a Nobel Peace Prize nomination. Now, he's working on a new book due out on September 19th, The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, A Scientist's Warning. The book is described as an eyewitness story of how the anti-vaccine movement grew into a dangerous and prominent anti-science element in American politics. And joining us now to discuss everything I just mentioned is Dr. Peter J. Hotez himself. He's dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine, and he's also the director of Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital. Dr. Hotes, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Oh, good morning, and thank you for having me this morning.
1: And you can also join the conversation. Let us know what questions you have. Give us a call at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Peter, you've been out front and center on the science of vaccines. This is also well before the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you talk to us about what inspired you to write this book, especially since this is basically your third book since the pandemic?
0: Well, you know, I... I've been writing books now for for a while, and in addition to being a, a working scientist and keeping up with the grants and the lab meetings and the and and the research papers. Um, and and a lot of them are about this um, rise in anti-vaccine activism uh, because it's so important. And the way I got involved is kind of interesting. I have uh, four adult kids, uh, uh, including Rachel who, uh, when I was on the faculty at Yale, Rachel was diagnosed with autism and intellectual disabilities at, actually at the Yale Child Study Center um, in, in New Haven. And um, shortly afterwards, there were false assertions that vaccines cause autism. And this came out with a uh, after a paper was published in The Lancet making that claim. In 1998 and so i was out in front always saying no this can't possibly be the case and and all of the experimental evidence has clearly shown it's not the case and then i wrote the book it was called vaccines did not cause rachel's autism a very straightforward title which went into the evidence showing there's no link and what autism is how it begins in early fetal brain development and that wound up making me public enemy number one or two with the anti-vaccine groups and so in addition to devoting my life to vaccine science i found myself you know defending vaccines on the front low on the front row of vaccine uh anti-science and and now watched it really blown up watch it really blow up during this time of COVID.
1: Well, and that's also sort of the perfect segue into my next question As you mentioned your daughter, Rachel, and your 2018 book, Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism, was a very, very personal look at the impact of influential anti-vaccine community and why misunderstanding around vaccines can be so you know, detrimental and impactful. How would you say, as you mentioned a little bit just now, the mechanics of this movement have evolved since then, especially with what we've seen with the current pandemic?
0: Yeah, I mean, the the OG assertion was that the vaccines cause autism, and that really accelerated during the 2000. And unfortunately, um, you know, the anti-vaccine groups at that time um, um, had a lot of bandwidth on the Internet, and they were monetizing the Internet, selling phony baloney autism cures and nutritional supplements and and anti-vaccine books on Amazon. And so I was calling that out. But then about 10 years ago, they they went through it a sea change the the thread the the false claim that vaccines cause autism is still with us but increasingly it became more of a political movement especially down where i am here in texas and in the southern united states around this banner called health freedom or medical freedom basically you know asserting libertarian rights you can't tell us what we want to do with our kids and and we and texas kind of became then the epicenter of the anti-vaccine movement because it got political support. It got actually PAC money from the Republican Tea Party in Texas and, and including a uh a, one of the major PACs in Texas and Empowered Texans. And they even created their own anti-vaccine pack, their own anti-vaccine political action committee. We got up to more almost hundred thousand kids denied a- various denied various vaccines because of this movement. And that's what came off the rails uh, during COVID. 19 that same libertarian anti-vaccine streak then really took hold around COVID-19 and and ultimately 40,000 Texans needlessly lost their lives because they refused to take a COVID vaccine after vaccines became widely available um in the spring of 2021 those are so of the 94,000 Texans who've died in this COVID pandemic so Texas is the worst affected state Uh, nationally, it's up there with California, but Texas has far fewer people. Um, Almost half of those deaths were needless deaths because they were victims. They were targeted by far-right groups and this whole libertarian groups and people. And we can go into more more in the weeds about who is actually perpetrating this and convincing Texans and other people in the Southern states not to to get vaccinated. And nationally, the number is around 200,000 people unnecessarily lost their lives because they refused the COVID vaccine during our horrible delta and omicron waves and ba1 omicron waves in 2021 and 2022 so that's why i'm writing and speaking about it it's not fun to delve into um american politics but i do it to save lives because 200 americans needlessly died because of this stuff and and that's why we have to take it seriously um, because if you're a scientist really concerned about saving lives. Now I think it's almost as important as making vaccines for the world to combat the anti-vaccine activism because so many people are dying because of it.
1: Well, and then you just mentioned that, be, well, because of what you just shared, this is not necessarily a new, a new thing that we're seeing in terms of anti-vaccines or anti-science. Um, you took us back a little bit in history, but can we also um, check in on those early days of the pandemic? Uh, how was some of the shifting guidance that we were receiving, sort of an, an example of science at work that maybe people were misunderstanding, like when the masking guidance uh, came out in the first first couple of months?
0: Well, I think, you know, in the early days, there was, you know, when you're learning about a brand new virus pathogen, there's a learning curve. You have to, you know, you're, you know, I think the, the early assumptions about um, COVID-19 were were that it were going to be like the first two coronavirus epidemic pandemics that we had in the 21st century, SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome that arose out of southern china in 20, 2002 and then mers middle eastern respiratory syndrome in, in 2012 and there were assumptions made that it was going to be more or less the same maybe a bit bigger and it turned out the corona this particular coronavirus had a lot of different aspects it caused much more thromboembolic disease cardiovascular events stroke than 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 the previous ones and so and the this the docs and the physicians and nurses and health and healthcare providers in New York, you know, had that learned the lesson the hard way because they got hit very hard. And if you remember in Mar- March and April of 2020, when sirens were going off nonstop, they had to learn about anticoagulating patients. So that there was that learning curve. Then um, there was confusion about the mode of transmission, you know, whether it was through droplet contact, which is The classic mode of influenza um whether it was the same and not really understanding that it was an airborne respiratory virus um and then in terms of vaccines and and the need for frequent boosters i think that wasn't necessarily um understood or or adequately conveyed to the people but you know one of the things that i tried to do when i was doing my going on cnn or msnbc or even fox news at that time was you know, not trying to dumb it down. I I went into, a, if you remember, a fair bit of complexity, and I think that resonated with people because I was able to explain my underlying assumptions. So that if things did change, then I could say, "Yes, I did say that, but if you remember, I also said it's based on X, Y, and Z assumption." And I think that was the mistake of the Health and Human Services agencies, from CDC and and the HHS agencies early on, is they clung to this old school style of communication which was you know we got to talk to the american people like they're in the 4th grade or 6th grade and dumb it down and just give summary statements and i i quickly realized that that that's not going to work in this pandemic people or you know at least a, a part of the country was desperate for real information to protect themselves and their loved ones so i went to a fair amount of detail and and i think that was very helpful because for instance when the first two doses of vaccines were rolled out. I said, you know, if M- mRNA is a new technology, but if it's like any other vaccine, we're going to need boosts. Um, and, you know, if that's the way we do our pediatric vaccines. We give a series of primary immunizations. We wait a few months, sometimes years, and then we boost. And then you get more durable and longer lasting uh, protection. And so, you know, ha- saying that, I think, was, was extremely um, helpful. But then, you know, I superimposed on all that was starting around April into the spring, the the West Wing of the the Trump White House started putting out Frank anti science disinformation, touting the benefits of hydroxychloroquine, saying the virus was like the flu, um, and you know, saying the, the hospital admissions were just catch up in elective surgery. And you know, I remember you know sitting in the green room of of cnn and msnbc and thinking you know this does I, I i know what this is because i've been going up against it for decades this is anti-science disinformation and and i called it out and i was one of the first to call it out not because i'm so brilliant but because i'd had all that experience going up against it and that was one of the first times that it was really explained that this was uh intent to deceive the american people and and unfortunately, that banned me from the nighttime uh, Fox News broadcast, although so the daytime anchors hung in there with me for a little while longer, but um but but I thought it was necessary. that was that was very tough to do because then I became a target, a target of people from the far right of people supporting President Trump at that time. and and that's when I saw something game changing, which was it wasn't just, um the usual uh, anti-vaccine groups monetizing the internet non-governmental groups this was this was anti-science aggression or disinformation supported at the highest the highest levels of the government supported by far-right members of the U.S Congress um both the House and Senate the House Freedom Caucus and then Amplified Nightly on Fox News and and then I saw them recruit a whole cadre of pseudo-intellectuals or contrarian and intellectuals from far-right think tanks to give it academic coverage. This became a, an entire disinformation uh, empire that actually got worse after Trump left office, and we can talk about that.
1: Well, and I was going to say, here you are in the daytime. So um wanted to ask, too, you mentioned we were getting a lot of information coming out of March and April 2020, and and also talking about there were so many assumptions made from all sides, and but in general, there is a desperate desire for real information. And you've been out there in the public, um, you know, spreading spreading information that you knew. So, how can public health messaging address that skepticism without sort of you know contorting or kowtowing to it?
0: Well, I think it's it's important one to, to like you say stick by your guns and and be able to speak about um uh health and science uh in, information in detail a- and in accurate ways and and not to be fearful of when people weaponize health communication and when they uh, actively promote disinformation to, to call it out as such and and you know it's a little bit easier for people like myself I mean I'm a I'm an academic professor and 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 but it's if you're um, a health official or if you're working for a local or state health agency, um, especially in in a red state, then it becomes really tough. And then you're trying to kind of strike that balance. And it's, and, and threading that needle is really problem. My wife says I use too many metaphors. um, (laughs) Threading that needle could be really, really problematic. And, but it's, it's, it's so critically important to, to do that because now what you're seeing is these, these anti-science anti-vaccine groups are are not what they used to be they're they're organized they're well-funded and they're politically motivated and they have the highest support of of elements of the federal government uh including far-right judges that were appointed by by president trump and so this is formidable so now you've got for instance the proud boys marching at anti-vaccine rallies you've got and so when the attack and so when I'm attacked it's it's often from far-right extremists and the threats are something like well the army of Patriots is coming to hunt me down and and that that sort of nonsense and and so it it is it is a formidable a formidable um foe and 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 I think the other problem that we face is in our scientific and medical communities you know there's this understanding that we we at all at all costs we're not supposed to politicize the science or or medicine and and how do you do that without talking about it so if if we now know from um studies reported by Charles Gabba, the Health Analyst New York Times Axios National Public Radio have all done the analysis and overwhelmingly those who lost their lives since um the first part of 2021 come from red states and the redder the county meaning red being republican blue being democrat the redder the county the lower the vaccination rate the higher the loss of life so much so that david leanhart of the new york times calls it red covid and you know it's not that i want to politicize it they politicized it my you know my my view is look everyone's entitled to their conservative views even extreme conservative views but somehow we've got to uncouple the anti-science from this because it's killing so many americans and and the the problem is the academic societies the federal government agencies the even the national academies of sciences and national academy of medicine don't know what to do about it because you know the thinking is at all costs we don't talk about democrats and republicans or liberals or conservatives but what do you do when the aggression is coming from one side, or to paraphrase paraphrase Weisel, neutrality is really favoring the aggressor. silence, neutrality is favoring the aggressor in this point. And that's why I decided to 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 speak out and describe it again, not because I care about your conservative views or or people's liberal views. I just want to save lives and and you can't talk about it without first talking about it. And and that's what we what I've done in the book. And and it's a very it was a tough book to write because it's so profoundly sad so many I mean 200,000 lives lost this is a societal force that's one of the most lethal societal forces we know of in modern times in the United States and yet we don't we don't frame it at that and I talk about these heartbreaking stories of people who refused vaccines and and are dying of COVID and and in some cases in their last dying breath saying that COVID is a hoax or at the eleventh hour, they said, "Okay, finally, I'll I'll take the vaccine." Not understanding that's not how it works. Vaccines are preventative; they're not therapeutic. Or, or in some cases, um, telling their family, "Don't do what I did. Get get vaccinated." And and I never want to see that happen again. And that's part of the reason for writing the book, also.
1: Well, and also because case count counts are now low, but experts have warned that this is likely. Drastically undercounted, given at-home tests or more under the radar. What are your concerns at this stage of the pandemic here in the U.S., with most of the precautionary measures and tracking efforts are no longer in effect?
0: Yeah, that's right. And and you know we were depending a lot on uh, the Johns Hopkins tracker, and that forms the basis of the daily reporting you might have seen in the New York Times or Wal- or uh, Washington Post. So so we're we're not getting that. So I do worry that we're 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 not paying attention um I, I think it's I think it's about time for those who have accepted the first bivalent booster we know the mRNA vaccine technology is not holding up as well as 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 other technologies as we'd like so that it's wearing off in terms of protection I mean there's still some protection but there's it's wearing off a lot against protection against even against hospitalizations so that if you were an early adopter like of the bivalent vaccine, like I was back in September, it's about time for a second bivalent booster. And hopefully, we're going to be hearing something very soon from the federal government about that authorizing it for some for some groups based on either age or other vulnerabilities. And not a lot of Americans are going to accept it. Only seventeen percent of Americans took the first bivalent booster. Not and you know when I talk to people about this, it's interesting. They really haven't gotten the understanding or the message that there's a difference between this new bivalent booster and previous monovalent boosters. So the rule out was, rule out was done very poorly. And so if, if 17% is probably the ceiling, so we're probably looking at 10% or less single digit percentages of those who will take the second bivalent booster. But for those who are interested in taking it, especially the immunocompromised, I think strongly we should offer it. And, and then... What happens next? And I think um, as we head into the fall, we have to recognize that in in the past, coronaviruses have sometimes become seasonal so that this may become a more standard type of winter uh, virus, um, almost like influenza. And so will we require annual boosters in the fall? So for instance, with our COVID vaccine, now 100 million doses, have been administered in India and Indonesia. Our technology, um, we're, we've are. We now prepared a bivalent booster version and we're getting ready for annual booster versions uh, as, as well and possibly even a universal coronavirus vaccine. And then the last point, that I'll stop for a minute, is um, remember that coronaviruses are a new reality. We've had SARS in 2002, severe acute respiratory syndrome, MERS, Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome in 2012. COVID starting in 2019. So every six to seven years, we should expect a major coronavirus epidemic or pandemic. And so if my prediction is correct, before the end of this decade, we're going to have another fourth major coronavirus and we need to get ready for that as well. So we have to, it's not a matter of just ending our preparedness, it's shifting our preparedness to get ready for that long-term strategy.
1: You've been hearing from Dr. Peter J. Hotes, who's a dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. He's also the director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital. After a quick break, we'll continue this discussion around his forthcoming book, The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, A Scientist's Warning, and dig into his upbringing here in Connecticut. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're back with Dr. Peter J. Hotes. He's a dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine, and he's also the director of the Center for Vaccine Movement or Development at Texas Children's Hospital. He's due out with a new book on September 19th. That's called The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, A Scientist's Warning. Just a reminder that you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Peter, we want to kind of rewind a little bit. You grew up here in West Hartford in Connecticut and eventually went to Yale for undergrad and then again to teach. What can you tell us about what started that first passion for public health?
0: Yeah, I mean, I grew up uh, born in Hartford, Um uh, and then moved, you know, the the whole most of the Jewish community. I kind of moved it once uh, over a few year period from the north end of Hartford to uh, West Hartford, and I was part of that movement. Um, all centered around the Crown Market on Albany Avenue, and and uh, I had a you know very you know solidly middle class uh, upbringing, and and uh, there was a a small brook by my home and. I had a. I found a small book in the library. I think it was in the north, the probably the north end branch of the West Hartford Public Library, uh, called "Hunting with a Microscope," and and I was became obsessed and uh, convinced my parents to purchase me a a serious microscope, which they did. You know, that's to this day I'm grateful for that because that was a lot of money for them back then, and I set up a laboratory in my. Basement. I was, you know, a nerdy kid that, you know, growing up in Hartford. Either the fight is whether you want to pitch for the Yankees or the Red Sox, and uh, I wanted to study microbes, and and then also was obsessed with maps. Also, so I guess the confluence of maps and microbes, you know, created the passion for tropical pathogens and and tropical medicine. So by the time I was eleven or twelve. I wanted to be a scientist studying tropical diseases, and and I went to Yale because there was a, a laboratory there was a laboratory uh, run by two laboratories run by professors Curtis Patton and Frank Richards at, at Yale that was studying African sleeping sickness, trypanosomes, and that was that was the basis of my decision to go to Yale, and then went to Rockefeller University in Cornell for my M.D. Ph.D. and and ever since, so it's so in some ways, um. I'm living out my boyhood fantasies in this uh, ironic way, but I think, so the point is being a scientist making vaccines for tropical diseases, we have now one for schistosomiasis that occurs on the African continent. This is a horrific illness of girls and women called female genital schistosomiasis. We're making that vaccine. It's in phase two trials, a hookworm vaccine, a leishmaniasis vaccine, the Chagas vaccine, and and then, about twelve years ago, we started making coronavirus vaccines because they were orphaned as well, and that allowed us to hit the ground running making a, a COVID nineteen vaccine. So the, you know, the the plan to have a life in science and microbes that had started pretty early on. I think the part I did not anticipate was the public engagement piece and having to defend vaccines and. And that I felt there was a vacuum. And if you know, I had a daughter with autism, if I didn't do it, who would? And so that's also been a, a parallel path, which I also find quite meaningful in, in a very different way.
1: Well, I want to thank you for starting a new tradition here. I think we're going to go with Micro Mondays or Map Mondays, depending on your mood for Brilliant. the day. <laughs> and, you know, we, we love a little nerd chic here. And I love that you found a small bro- brook and a small book but it made big changes in your life and I'm really curious at the age of 12 why by,
0: by the <laughs> way the libraries also I can't exactly. say enough. we have we have you have ama- I just remember amazing libraries both the North End branch but also in in the center of West Hartford that fantastic library and then the Hartford Public Library I mean that that was my that was my uh I don't know what to call it my you know, where I just spent so much time, you know, just looking at books and random on science and this and that. It's such a difference in my life,
1: right? Absolutely, and I can still I can still smell the first library that I also spent many many hours in when I was small. Um, but I do just want to ask, you know, when you were twelve years old, why why tropical diseases? What was that moment for you when you realized that that was the direction that you want to go with?
0: I think um, I think part of it was. Um, the combination of microbes, which I always knew in and, and reading book, uh, books like Microbe Hunters, but also this f- sort of other fascination with maps, um, which I've always had in looking at maps of far off places. And so, as I said, that's sort of the confluence of the two. You put uh, maps of exotic parts of the world with microbes and guess what you get tropical diseases and I think that probably had a lot lot to do with it and I just couldn't get enough I mean I would just dread voracious I mean my parent was, my parents you know spent a lot of time driving me around dropping me off at libraries and and the other wonderful place of course was the Yukon Health Center in Farmington which you know when I found that that was like I had gone to heaven it was you know and because I'd never known about what a scientific Journal was all of a sudden I found there wasn't just books on this but there are entire journals devoted to these diseases and and I got my first job in high school working in the microbiology department at the Yukon Health Center uh, with a professor there named Bob Poyton who um has um but but that was that was extraordinary as well so you know we you shouldn't underestimate the very enriched and intellectually enriched environment that that's afforded by growing up in Connecticut.
1: Well, and I know you mentioned your reasoning for going to Yale to study your passion, but can you share with us a little bit of why you broke out the family tradition of going to Trinity College? Because you mentioned that your brothers and your father went to Trinity College here in Hartford.
0: Yeah, that's that's right. We were and my uncle, so we were a real Trinity family. And I still Love visiting Trinity College. I haven't been there in a long, long time, but it's, it's a it's a wonderful institution. But um, at the time, Yale had uh, two as I two professors that were studying exa- exactly what I wanted to study, which were uh, parasitic infections. Curtis Patton, who's who's still with us, and Frank Richards, who passed away a few years ago and 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 that was and I wanted to be in the laboratory, so. Um, you know it's interesting i spent so much of my yale undergraduate career i was a biochemistry major what they called at that time molecular biophysics and biochemistry mb and b and spent a good chunk of my undergraduate years in in the laboratory and working with trypanosome parasites firsthand and now the irony is one of our vaccines is a vaccine for a trypanosome so that's so bringing that back full circle as well so in many ways i tell my family i doing pretty much what I started out to do decades ago. And so what I do on a daily basis is different, but not that different from from what I did as a as a teenager.
1: Well, it's amazing that you can still work with your passion. And, and I think uh, teenage Peter is very happy with adult Peter, I would say. Uh, what, and you ultimately returned to Yale to teach. So what brought you back?
0: Um, I was... You know, I went to did my MD PhD in New York at Rockefeller and Cornell, which was extraordinary. Um, but you know, it was it was a tough place as well. It's you know very you know academic medical centers are very competitive places, and coming back to be with with Frank Richards, and and that very nurturing environment as 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 well as uh, Curtis, I think I, I kind of needed that grounding, and and that was great. I set up my own lab and. Was there for ten or eleven years, and and was had a very productive experience on the faculty there. And then, but I wanted eventually, I wanted my own show. At the time, was important for me to to head a department. And um, George Washington University gave me the opportunity to be at a pretty young age to be microbiology department chair there. So um, made that jump to to Washington D.C. And also I, at that time, I wanted to start making vaccines and. I needed, um, collaborators who knew how to actually make, physically make vaccines. And, and at that time, you know, you couldn't walk into GSK or Merck or Pfizer to this day, you can't say, teach me how to make a vaccines, but the ones who were doing it were Walter Reed army Institute of research. So the, the army and, and physicians and scientists at Walter Reed, um, sort of took me under their wing and um so I was at George Washington University but they helped me so I got a lot of mentoring uh from from Walter Reed Army Institute of research which I knew as a kid was very important in in tropical diseases and so that was actually a a driving reason for being in Washington DC and at the same time um when you were in Washington DC in the 2000s you know you were Rome at the height of the Roman Empire so there was all of this Uh, legislation being passed around global health. George W. Bush was very committed to that, and he launched PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. So I worked with the Bush White House, and that's how I got to know Tony Fauci especially well, although I'd known him before, but I got to know him quite well, working on legislation for neglected tropical diseases, and that's how I started getting more involved in the public engagement uh, role as well. So my, my experience in D.C. is something that I still treasure to this day.
1: Well, and you mentioned earlier that you were surprised at the public engagement aspect of your passion. That wasn't something that you read in those library books. And looking back, what do you think is missing when we think about the shifting needs of public health messaging, especially what we've experienced and witnessed through this pandemic?
0: I think we have to bring it into our training for physicians, uh, medical students, residents, or doctors doctoral students, PhD students, postdoctoral students, public health students, that there's a vacuum there. You know, When I was getting my MD and PhD in New York back in the 80s, the message was, well, you're not really supposed to engage the public or talk to journalists. That was seen as a form of self-promotion or grandstanding. And all those ideas were put in place before something called the internet came along. And now the world's changed and there's still that vacuum. And And there's still that reluctance to engage the public and and the culture of academic institutions hasn't changed very much either i mean you know if you look to many offices of communications within universities and academic health centers the 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 i mean at best you'll often get is it's better where where i am because i've been able to work with them over the years and they're really good at baylor and texas children's hospital but at some places you know the message is um well you're an academic you're free to speak out dot 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 but don't screw this up and don't get the institution in trouble don't put the institution at risk so the offices of communications at academic institutions are very risk averse so you always feel like you're speaking out with the sort of damocles over your head and and i think we've got to flip that around because that has created a vacuum and filling that space is all of the the grifters and the anti-vaccine anti-science rhetoric from Congress and, and Fox News and that's what dominates the cable news channels that's what dominates um, the internet that's what dominates streaming services and now it's killing people as I say two hundred thousand Americans needlessly died because they believed um what they heard on Fox News and from from members of the House Freedom Caucus and people like Senator Johnson of Wisconsin um, with their anti-vaccine rhetoric so it's a killing lethal force and I think and there's you know no quick fix here but I think one of them is changing the culture of academic medicine and science to actually encourage people being out there in the public domain not not discouraging it. not everybody wants to do it but you know when I talk to young people the commitment to public service is pretty high. And I think, you know, if people want to do that, we have to give them the skills to do it. I mean, I had to learn by trial and error, or as I like to say more error than trial over the years, but, but there is there is there are ways that you can improve your communication skills. And for those who want to do it, we should give them the option.
1: And speaking of public engagement, here's just a reminder that you can also join the conversation. Call us at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Rich on Twitter asked you, Peter, how do you approach building trust with folks who may also not have a solid educational base? Does it not success? How do you uh, respond to that, Peter? Yeah, I
0: mean, it used to be easier. right? I mean, if a parent... Um, didn't want to vaccinate their child, you could usually have a discussion with them and you know, explain why measles is a killer disease, why pertussis whooping cough is a killer disease and this is why we have these vaccines and here's their safety record and then most of the time parents would agree to vaccinate. Now it's become much tougher because of this politicization and this link to, to, to libertarian values in, in the far right. So uh, an individual's actual identity is tied to not getting vaccinated it's become sort of the canon of things that the election was stolen um uh the president president trump is being victimized you know favoring russia over ukraine and back it's you know and and what you're seeing now is this revisionist history coming from the far right um maybe in part because I'm throwing those accusations out there at them they're trying to say that it was the vaccines that killed Americans not not the not not the virus which is absolute nonsense and that the scientists created COVID-19 which is also absolute nonsense and if you're watching this on Fox News every night and if you're you know or or Joe Rogan podcasts and, and everything else then then it's very hard to pull people out of that rabbit hole and and that's become really, really tough. So it's it's going to take time, but but right now we're still falling further behind every day because the 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 dominance of the anti-vaccine, anti-science stuff, and the news cycle is just so overwhelming.
1: You've been listening to Dr. Peter J. Hotez, who's the Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine and the Director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital. He'll be staying with us. Coming up next, we're going to hear from a Connecticut scientist who's also concerned about the impacts of fake science. You can also join the conversation. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I'm gonna go This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're hearing from acclaimed scientist and Connecticut native Dr. Peter J. Hotus He's due out with a new book on September 19th called The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, A Scientist's Warning. Joining the discussion now is Mark Zimmer. He's a Connecticut College chemistry professor who's also concerned about the impacts of fake science. His latest book, Science and the Skeptic, was for young readers, helping them discern fact from fiction. Welcome to the show, Mark.
2: Thank you. I'm really happy to be here.
1: Uh, Mark, want to jump straight to it and ask, you know, what's your response to what Dr. Hodes has said? Is there anything that jumped out
2: to you? I think the parallels with um, climate change and the way climate change denial has been politicized and social media has sort of driven a split between people who believe in climate change and not. I think at the beginning with COVID, um, like Peter said, we didn't know much about it, whereas climate change we've known for a couple of hundred years now, and still there's a political divide and a false balance, and that's sort of where we are with vaccines right now. You know, all the evidences in vaccines work, but there's still a political divide, so I think that... Par- it's parallel really struck
0: me I, I think that's right I I would agree I would agree with that in fact um when um I was being targeted now by the far right you know for my views on vaccines and and COVID um I reached out to um or I can't remember if he reached out to me or I reached out to him Michael Mann who, who um, who's uh, at the time was a professor of climate science at Penn State University. Now he's moved to the University of Pennsylvania to kind of seek his advice and counsel about how he dealt with it for for climate against climate denialism and that same political motivation. And we, st- we still stay in touch quite a bit. And I talk about Michael Mann and the parallels with climate science in, in the book, including this very interesting uh, climate defense fund, because, you know, one of the tech tactics that the anti-science people use is what's called legal thuggery they they threaten scientists with lawsuits and send letters on legal letterhead and and you know who helps you with that and so i've talked with him about maybe setting up something similar for the biomedical scientists so i think i think mark you're absolutely spot on that, that there is there are similarities between what we're hap- what's happening now in the bio- in biomedical sciences with what happened 10 years ago with with climate science is still is still ongoing
1: so we've talked about so many different angles in regards to the COVID-19 pandemic The last this last hour. Mark, I want to ask, you also wrote about the infodemic at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, which describes how the pace of scientific consensus couldn't keep up with the speed of reporting on the many studies, which you said fertilized the ground for conspiracy theories and false health advice. Can you talk about that a bit?
2: Well, I think the main difference... Peter mentioned it too, when COVID came around, we had SARS and MERS as sort of models, but we were looking at a totally new picture, and we didn't know very much. And everybody knew it was important, so all the scientists with the right background began working on it, including a whole bunch of scientists and economists and other modelers who probably didn't have the right background, all tried to find out what was happening with COVID. And so there was suddenly a huge glut of scientific publications and not enough people to peer review them to see whether the science was right. And so a lot of stuff slipped through and then social media just echoed it and blew it up.
1: Well, and Peter also spoke about this earlier, about how politics comes in. So Mark, I want to ask you too, you know, you you also wrote about how political identity can define beliefs, even when it comes to science. Can you help us break that
2: down? Yeah, so this is one of the problems. Peter mentioned it slightly, and in climate change, it's the certain, same problem. It becomes an identity. So if you're um, see yourself as a very staunch Republican, part of that identity is not believing in climate change or not believing in va- uh, vaccination. And also all the media you get, just because with the way um, search engines work and Twitter work, all sort of start sending you the same information. And you live in this sort of echo chamber in which, yeah, Everybody's saying vaccines don't work, vaccines um, cause autism or climate change is not real. And that's your political identity. And it's very, very difficult to dissuade somebody from that. In fact, studies have shown that people will change their mind. But then a couple of months afterwards, after being back in the society and the groups that they Like to hang out with, they'll change back to climate change or vaccine denial.
0: I think the the game changer, and I totally completely agree with that. I think the game changer is a decade ago that the echo chamber was still relatively modest in size. And it was, you know, a few a few groups that were dominating the internet. Now, the echo chamber is endorsed at the highest levels of federal and state governments. I mean, you have, the governor of Florida openly espousing anti-vaccine and anti-science viewpoints and not only targeting the science but the scientists and and you have this at, in the, as I mentioned people you know members of the House Freedom Caucus you know I had you know Marjorie Taylor Green and go after me on Steve Bannon's War Room podcast and so that echo chamber is is not small it's 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 enormous and and I think in the and the worries among the worrisome part is not only targeting the science, but trying to portray scientists as enemies of the state. And that we hadn't seen in, in America for a long, long time. And you know, in the book, I draw some parallels between this was a technique that propagandists like Stalin used in in the early mid 20th century to to gain political authoritarian control is targeting not only the science but the scientists we saw this somewhat with bolsonaro in brazil who's fortunately out of office we saw it with victor or see with victor orban in hungary so it's become a signature now of far-right authoritarian regimes to target science and scientists and so now to understand this i talk to political scientists to to get to help get my arms around it and and there's no roadmap here um but it, it's we're getting into a very dark place in america unfortunately I, eventually I do believe it will auto-correct. i I just don't know whether that auto correction will happen in two years or or twenty years and that that's the big unknown
1: well unfortunately, we only got about thirty seconds left, but I would love to ask Peter uh, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners?
0: No um, I just appreciated the opportunity and and you know you're um you're in a part of the country that's more enlightened than most when it comes to science and medicine and, And just take the time to treasure your scientific and medical institutions, wonderful universities and and medical schools and 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 recognize what how how important they are, not only for preserving the health and wellness of the state of Connecticut, but also um, the security and the economy of the state.
1: Well, thank you so much for your thoughts. That was Dr. Peter J. Hotes, who is the Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine and the Director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital. His new book, The Deadly Rise of Anti Science A Scientist Warning, is out September 19th. And you've also been listening to Mark Zimmer, who is a Connecticut College chemistry professor. Thank you, Mark, so much for your time today. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.